Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. My name is Zifeng Liu, and I am a doctoral candidate in the Africana Studies and Research Center at Cornell University. And I am Kelvin Ng, a doctoral student in history at Yale University. Today, we are very honored to be joined by Professor Patricia Owens and Dr. Katharina Riesler. Patricia Owens is Professor of International Relations at the University of Oxford. Her most recent book, Economy of Force, published by Cambridge University Press, won, among others, the 2016 Susan Strange Prize for the Best Book in International Studies and the 2016 International Studies Association Theory Section Best Book Award. Owens's first book was Between War and Politics, International Relations, and the Thought of Hannah Arendt, published by Oxford University in 2007. Dr. Katharina Riesler teaches American, women's, and international history at the University of Sussex, UK. Her work has appeared in journals such as Modern Intellectual History, the Journal of Global History, Diplomatic History, Diplomacy and Statecraft, Global Society, and in several edited collections. Riesler's main interest in the, is in the history of international thought and internationalism in its social, political, economic, and legal dimensions from the 1910s to the 1960s. She is currently completing a book on 20th century U.S. philanthropy, international thought, and the problem of the public. Today, we will be discussing the new edited collection, Women's International Thoughts, A New History, recently published by Cambridge University Press. This book is the first cross-disciplinary history of women's international thought, bringing together some of the foremost historians and scholars of international relations working today. This book recovers and analyzes the path-breaking work of 18 leading thinkers of international politics from the early to mid-20th century. Recovering and analyzing this important work, 
DS is often revisionist accounts of IR's intellectual and disciplinary history and expand the locations, genres, and practices of international thinking. Systematically structured and focusing in particular on Black diasporic, Anglo-American, and European historical women, it does more than, quote, add women to the existing intellectual and disciplinary histories from which they were erased. Instead, it raises fundamental questions about which kinds of subjects and what kind of thinking constitutes international thought, opening new vistas to scholars and students of international history and theory, intellectual history, and women's and gender studies. Patricia and Katerina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Um, it's, it's a real honor. Thank you, and many congratulations on the new book. So let's get right to the book. Um, what was the theoretical or historiographical impetus behind this volume? This book recovers and analyzes the path-breaking work of 18 leading thinkers of international politics from the early to mid uh, 20th century. In doing so, it raises fundamental questions about which kinds of subjects and what kind of thinking constitutes international thought. What are some of these con constitutive exclusions that have structured the disciplines of international thought and intellectual history? And what have these disciplines occluded from view? Why were and are women's contributions to international thought neglected? Uh, well, the, the histographical uh, impetus behind the volume, um, well, there are many, but one is the, the, the near total exclusion of women in IR's intellectual and disciplinary history. So if I just speak about IR, um, I did a simple quantitative study of 60, 60 histories just to get a sense of the scale of the problem. Fewer than 3% of references um, to historical figures were to historical women, those working before the late 20th century. And so, you know, we, we thought based on studies in, in similar fields like sociology and history that it was extremely unlikely that this was uh, anything close to an accurate reflection of the breadth and depth of women's international thinking. Mm -hmm. um, we understand international thinking to mean deep reflection on the relations between peoples, empires and states. Um, some of the constitutive exclusions that have structured international relations as it emerged as a separate field. I mean, they, these have been studied by feminists, post-colonial scholars and others for a long time. Um, they center on gender, sexuality, race, empire, class, and nation. I think in this volume, we add genre and audience. Um, you know, IR's canon has privileged you know, major treaties as the genre for theoretical work on international relations. Um, women also wrote you know, large major treaties, but also this work marginalizes genres in which women and many men worked, um, uh, including in writing intended for more popular audiences. Yeah, I think um, it's it's also important to emphasize, um, and coming here from the history side, it, I mean, this, this project is a, a real sort of conversation across the disciplines. Um, and, and obviously, there has been so much important work in historical IR, which historians have, have obviously read and reflected on. But um, for, for me uh, personally, coming from the history side uh, of things, um, I had been researching the disciplinary history of international relations for almost a decade um, when, when I came to this project. And, and so just from the empirical record, it was very clear to me that there were many women who thought about research and published on international affairs. And, and that really contrasted with their treatment in the literature. I mean, you, occasionally you would find hints, um, but it, there wasn't really anything 
uh, like a systematic treatment of uh, women um, who were international thinkers in in a broader in a broader sense. Um, so uh, the the other thing that um, I, I think is is um, was was quite obvious to to international historians or intellectual historians of the international um, was that women were present at key locations for the production of international thought, whether that was uh, conferences, academe, think tanks, philanthropic foundations, international organizations, and NGOs. So there was simply also a mismatch between the empirical evidence um, and the scholarly analysis of women and gender in international thinking. And um, I, I think the, the other thing that the volume does, um, besides the the really important contributions that Patricia has just mentioned is, is to use looking for women in international thought as a heuristic device. Um, and probably also without the predetermined assumption that if you use that lens of, of women, you would uncover a genealogy of feminist international relations, because quite possibly, quite possibly you wouldn't. So um, this project really started then um, as, a, as a conversation across the disciplines. Um, we, we had a an initial um, kind of exchange in, in 2015 and, and it developed from there. In terms of why women um, were marginalized in histories of international thought, particularly in the IR field, when, you know, as Katrina says, you know, they were so active and present in the interwar period, I, you know, this is, you know, work we're, we're still doing, but it seems to be partly the style of women's international thinking which didn't fit during the creation of a new disciplinary canon for international relations in the 1950s in the United States. So during the 20s, 30s, 40s, and after, you know, IR women, certainly in the academy, you know, they, they practiced international relations thinking as economic and diplomatic historians. They were area specialists and comparativists, among other things. And so um, few of them seem to have been very interested in, the, in disciplinary boundary work that accelerated in the 1950s. Um, they didn't particularly develop abstract theories of the international system uh, in the effort to carve out distinct identity for IR as separate from what behaviorists and historians were doing. This is not to say that early IR women in the academy didn't engage in conceptual and theoretical work. Obviously they did, but they did not instigate or really participate in you know, the grand theory wars between paradigms, which became one of the dominant modes of IR scholarship after World War II. You know, so they didn't join the men in the 50s inventing a canon of intellectual greats for IR and then seek to position themselves as, 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 as its true heirs. Thank you so much for that. And it's really interesting because this volume was born of the interdisciplinary research project, Women and the History of International Thought. So before we delve a bit deeper into the book, I just want to ask how the idea behind this volume developed. What was the editorial process like and who were your interlocutors? And how did your own thinking around women's international thought evolve in process? So perhaps if you could just tell us a bit more about the larger research project. I know you also have been working on an exhibition as well. Katerina is, is too modest in her last answer. So, so Katerina and um, her and historians Velasco Huber and Tamsin Peach they organised a workshop in 2015, and really there, um, the idea for the volume came. I mean, I was lucky enough to be in, um, invited to attend as the author of um, my, uh, uh, my first book on Hannah Arendt, which is the only monograph on an historical woman thinker, women's international thought um, in IR. Um, I. You know, I thought it would be good to broaden the conversation and had access to some money through the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard. So Katrina and I organized 
uh, but then we were both based at Sussex, organized a two-day exploratory seminar um, co-sponsored by um, intellectual historian David Armitage. So most of the contributors to the edited volume first presented their essays at this uh, Radcliffe seminar. And our thinking was certainly shaped um, in, in this process, for me at least, uh, and perhaps I don't think this is less so for, for Katrina, but for me at least, it became very clear that the most interesting existing work on women's intellectual history was black was in black women's or the histories of women's international thought was was in black women's intellectual history, um, and it is only possible to say that histories of international thought have ignored women if we construct a disciplinary and ultimately racialized boundary between sort of histories of international thought and black women's intellectual history. Um, the larger Leverheim research project on women in the history of international thought came out of so the, so the collaboration on this on this volume when we realized that a collaborative funded project was really necessary to begin to sort of scratch, bring together existing forays, but to scratch the surface of what needs to be done in terms of recovery. I mean, here, we're, not, we're not, certainly not the first to observe women's absence in, in intellectual and disciplinary history and also their presence. I mean, we we um, strongly credit the work of Glenda Sluger and others for you know this this work. Um, we in our project wanted to broaden out to political theorists. We invited Kim Hutchings, who had worked on feminist theory and canonical figures, and the three of us worked together, joined for two years by postdoctoral researcher Sarah Dunstan and doctoral researcher um, Joe Wood. Uh, we, do you want to talk about the conference? Um, I mean, exhibition. Maybe, maybe just a, about the various outputs, because I, I think um, now, now you are being maybe a bit, uh, a bit modest, because we have been very busy um, producing a, a number of journal articles, but also um, we are in the process of publishing an anthology of women's international thought. Um, so that is a companion uh, volume to the volume that is under discussion today. Um, there have been uh, several articles on on the canon, on, on women and the canon. And we have also, or rather Sarah Dunstan, um, the postdoctoral researcher on the project, has produced, um, I think, a terrific uh, oral history resource of, of women who are working in the field um, now, um, sort of senior women IR scholars, um, which is available on the project website. Um, there is a blog uh, that is updated monthly, and um, we will have an exhibition next year at the London School of Economics, uh, which is currently um, in, in planning, or we we are very much looking forward to that. And there will also be a conference. So, um, and I I can only agree uh, with Patricia. It, it has been it has been um, a project that has only been possible. Um, by drawing on on the really excellent and foundational work of of many many scholars, um, uh, Black women's inter intellectual history has has certainly been very important um, in that, and um, uh, especially especially the, the foundational volume, really um, edited by Barbara Savage, uh, Martha Jones, and others toward an intellectual history of of Black women that that has been very important, but also research um, that is more at the um, kind of intersection of uh, women's intellectual history and the history of women in diplomacy. And Glenda Sluger has already been mentioned, but Helen McCarthy would be another scholar um, who has been uh, influential to us. But it, I could go on and on. There are many, many scholars whose excellent work we have been fortunate to to draw into the project, not just in this edited volume, but also in, in the other outputs that um, we are still producing. Sorry, that sounds terribly managerial output, but um, <laughs> it, it, it is grand, grand language. But uh, if you excuse that, apologies. 
Oh, oh no, thank you so much um, for um, really introducing to us all those important projects that you have completed and, and that you are still working on. Um, you know, like I, I would like to um, kind of um, you to talk more about your interlocutors. So uh, the title of the introduction of this volume uh, toward a history of women international thought reminds me as someone who is working on a dissertation about like women internationalism of two other groundbreaking collections in women's intellectual history. So um, Katharina just mentioned one of them. Um, and uh, so uh, there are two that I uh, can think of. One is toward an intellectual history of women. The other one is toward an intellectual history of black women. And then um, there are other volumes um, about uh, women's internationalism. Uh, and there are scholars who are also doing that kind of work. So uh, I would like to uh, ask about this uh, practice of women's anthologies. Could you say a little bit about anthologies as a feminist genre? And more specifically, what insights can, can we gain when we put the women intellectuals that you and other contributors study into conversation? Yeah, the, the title of the introduction was was an homage to, to these earlier groundbreaking volumes. Uh, we were really lucky to have Linda Kerber uh, and Barbara Savage at the Radcliffe Seminar. Um, as, as Katrina has mentioned, Barbara um, with Mia Bay, Farah Griffin and Martha Jones with one of the editors of Towards an Intellectual History of Black Women. We even considered <laughs> entitling this volume Towards an Intellectual History of Inter Women's International Thought, and but Barbara's discouraged that, and so we, we immediately dropped the idea. Yes. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. women, <laughs> women's, um, women's, look, women's intellectual production clearly lends itself to anthology form, and, and, the antholo and the anthology form is most useful when you're doing, I think, a recovery project and trying to create resources for curricular reform, for political mobilization, as well as scholarly intervention. Mm -hmm. So this is a, an important feminist genre, and we, and you know, as Katrina has mentioned, we've worked through this genre in the project. We we're just finalising the remaining permissions on the anthology um, that will come out later this year, which we co-edited with Kim Hutchings and Sarah Dunstan. Um, it's uh, 748 pages long. It will be the largest anthology of international thought in print. Um, you know what what anthology allows you to do is include you know, showcase not just books and journal articles, but also newspaper articles, book reviews. We've included radio addresses, poetry, internal memoranda, teaching materials, um, you know, again, showcasing sort of the variety of women's intellectual production um, in this field, just really proving beyond doubt that they're, they're not just their presence and, their, and the number of these figures, but also the, the centrality of their of their work in this early, emerging early field of international relations. So the, the anthology is, um, you know, it is primarily the teaching companion to the edited volume. It is for teaching use, but actually we, we think that it will have, um, that it will be an important, you know, contribution to sort of scholarship in, 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 in the field as well. Yes, and, and maybe just, just to add to that, if, if I may, um, one of the things that, that struck us as we were working on the anthology was that um, initially, obviously, when you start a project, there, there is always some skepticism and there was some skepticism whether we would find enough women who wrote on international relations as we define them. Um, but we ended up having too many that we could not include everybody that would have been... Um, would have been interesting and we would have liked to include. So it is it is an initial attempt, obviously, and anthology is in some way 
field mapping, but I I would assume that anybody who has ever uh, completed one would feel that um, it's it's not quite enough, and and there's much more to do. So I think it's it's a starting point, maybe a one point in the conversation, and um, we hope obviously that this will be generative of of more research. And as somebody who teaches a lot, um, I I I personally really hope that this will influence teaching on. Um, modules or courses not just in intellectual history but but also in IR and to be a really really useful cross-disciplinary teaching um, resource. Well I for one am certainly looking out for this anthology but before we speak more about that let's turn now more directly to the book and its chapters. Um, There are 15 chapters in a book organized around three broad sections canonical thinkers, outsiders and thinking in or around the academy. The book thus addresses a broad range of thematic concerns and geographic spaces, while opening up new possibilities for the study of international thought. The volume does not seek to merely add women to the existing record of international thought, but rather to unsettle its received historical and theoretical categories. In that respect, your analysis draws importantly on feminist theoretical literature in historicizing the category of women, rather than assuming it to be ontologically or transhistorically stable. You write that, quote, the operations of gender, the discursive organization and interpretation of sexual difference shape the conditions, content and reception of international thoughts. Could you perhaps elaborate on the category of historical women and what is the consequent methodological relationship that emerges between gender and intellectual history on one hand and the experiences and ideas of historical women on the other? This is a a fundamental question and and thank you for raising it. Um, For us to to speak of historical women, so historical doesn't just mean for us uh, women working before the late 20th century, um, but also, well, we, 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 we do not commit, um, it doesn't commit us to, to gender essentialism or assume a correspondence between biology and gender. So the historical is also a sort of constructivist um, move, intellectual move. So the claim is that the historical, op- why we focus on, on women or historical women is, is the claim that, that the historical operations of the dominant sex gender binary influence the production and reception of international thought. So in the, in the survey of 60 histories that I mentioned earlier, historical women are identified through gendered names and pronouns. This is not taken to be synonymous with, with the self-identity of those named or, 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 or um, the, the, sec, the, the gender of those names. So the project um, it man, you know, acknowledges the many ways that historical actors have um, professed indifference to, rejected, um, de- deployed, um, contested prevailing sex gender norms. So in the anthology, for example, we include um, two figures who were gender non-conforming, um, Simone Weil um, and Pauline Murray. Um, we include them, um, the way we, re- we include them is recognition of, of how they were read, of the effects of the operation of assumptions around their gender identity on, on the content and reception of their intellectual work. We're not Seeking to impose on them an identity that they that they that they rejected, um, that would be my answer to that. So the last part of your question. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, we we live in a in a in a ge- in the middle of a, a gender revolution. I think you, you could say, and um, and these uh, meanings are contested. Um, I, I think historically, or coming from 
intellectual history. Um, Quentin Skinner once suggested a, a test that can be applied to a modern interpretation. Could the author be brought to accept that this was the meaning of her text? And, and we might also apply this test uh, to such categories. And, and obviously, there, there are um, we cannot uh, assume the sort of transhistorical stability of some of these categories, but uh, but we, we needed a kind of a, a working base to to proceed in our research, and I, I think we found um, a, a good uh, solution there. Thank you for that. Um, really, I I mean I think this book really shows us um, clearly the kind of gendered, sexualized. Uh, um, dimensions of um, you know uh, international thought and the field of international relations, and um, I want to uh, further talk about uh, your definition of thought and thinking. So this volume inaugurates an important rethinking of the categories of thought and thinking, and offers a capacious definition of what kind of thinking constitutes international thought. So on the one hand, it recognizes the mutually Implicated nature of thought with positionality and subjectivity. On the other hand, it also recognizes the uh, interrelated domains of policy formulation, practice, activism, and definitely the apparatuses and systems of intellectual production. Why did you see it necessary to rethink the conditions of possibilities for intellectual production? And what might this capacious view of thought enable us? To see um, uh, that uh, would otherwise be be uh, occluded or excluded in conventional intellectual historical accounts. Could you elaborate on how centering and analyzing um, women's intellectual thought can reveal the gendered, racialized, sexualized foundations of IR or international thought and reorient the field? Um, so here we're making a point that's that's very basic and common to women's intellectual history and feminist political theory. Um, Gendered, racialized, sexual, national class hierarchies are fundamental, enabling and disabling conditions for for not just the production, but also the reception of all knowledge about international relations. So, I mean, if, if, as IR has done, we focus on a narrow swathe of male dominated locations and occupations and genres and positions, then we have a really impoverished understanding of the intellectual history of, of, of the field. Um, so we're not really making an original argument here, um, in a, but, we're, but we're doing a recovery and analysis when in a kind of new, a new context. Um, so, but in the context of cross-disciplinary work in international intellectual history, we, we do show that as a narrow view of thought and thinking means that has resulted in the fact that, you know, that medi- the mediocre work of white men is celebrated, uh, it is canonized, and the exceptional work of those gendered female, racialized as non-white, can, can be ignored, appropriated, and online. Now, we, we also think it's important that we don't just, that the figures that we are recovering are not only exceptional figures that, that <laughs> we want to include, um, uh, you know, mediocre work as part of the intellectual and disciplinary history of international relations, as of, you know, the mediocre work of, you know, white, what we might, might what described as white women's IR in the British context is is also part of it is part of the interesting history of that field. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, there there um, there were many differences between the different thinkers that that are featured in the volume, and um, um, indeed uh, some some of the um, some of some 
of the important um, international women's organizations that, that were key locations for international thought have, have already been well recovered. And, and here I'd just like to mention the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. So, so these were quite hospitable places for, for some women because um, WILPF, as it was called, it had an expansive educational operation, produced reports, held conferences, etc., etc. But other thinkers in, in this volume um, had um, faced um, many more difficulties and, and couldn't really be considered intellectuals, as uh, as has just been mentioned. I mean, these were thinkers who were eccentric, maybe mediocre, um, sometimes you know uh, difficult to take seriously on on their own terms. But um, but uh, all the same, um, we we thought it was very important to include them because a sort of generous reading of some of these figures uh, produced um, very interesting insights into. In, for example, the case of Elizabeth Lippincott-McQueen, um, she provided us with an interesting insight into the connection between technology and technological and racial utopias um, in the interwar period, which, which sort of fitted in with an Anglo-American millenarianism, a particular form of spirituality um, that sort of to us showed a, a really interesting way in which um, women and gender were also really important for um, introducing a certain vision of um, aviation-led globalism in the United States. So even thinkers that we might usually exclude um, from the history of the discipline um, can actually tell us important, um, important uh, or give us important insights about intellectual life more broadly and also about international theorizing. Thank you so much for that, because I think that that brings us to a really important point when we think about the lives and itineraries of these ideological concept formations, um, especially because this book focuses on the late 19th to mid 20th century moment, which witnessed the emergence of international relations as a distinct sphere, new international organizations and conceptualizations of international law. This was also a moment witnessing the development of a range of political and intellectual projects. So you have imperialism and anti-imperialism, liberalism, socialism, Marxism, conservatism and fascism, nationalism and internationalism, etc. Um, so here my question then would be, how does this volume contribute to and challenge understandings of these ideological formations? And what does a sustained engagement of gender enable in terms of apprehending the conditions of possibility undergirding the growth of international thought as an intellectual tradition? Um, and perhaps as a, as a question that's somewhat related to that, how do you examine the contradictions that are imminent to these women's global engagements? This is another great question. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's question. a very long question. It's, uh, yeah. it's hard to do it justice. <laughs> I mean, it's no. I think it's not an exaggeration uh, to say that in the 1920s and 30s, international thought was was a was a quite feminized domain. Partly due, you know, it was a space that women could enter into. It was, it was sort of a, a new terrain. Um, some of the earliest teaching and research centers where, you know, women were, 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 were present. They, they made their way in, as international thinkers in the academy, um, partly due to the, the novelty of the subject matter. Um, it's fluid intellectual boundaries. There was no, nobody had been disciplined into it yet. It was an emerging field. Um, and it co-emerged um, with the expansion of women's higher education. And this is a really important um, point that um, our, uh, doctor, the doctoral researcher on the project, jo jo Joanna Wood, is 
telling a really brilliant story in the context of the US. Um, so all this meant that large numbers of women scholars and teachers were really formative um, in, the, in the development of the study of international relations in terms of the movement concepts that you identify. I mean, women engaged with and contributed to all of them. And this is clear, not just from the edited volume, but then the anthology. And they sometimes defined them. So, very, you know, Rosa Luxemburg, she was at, at the forefront of thinking on the intersection between capitalism and international relations in the 1910s. You know, Ellen Churchill Semple, one of the most influential proponents of geopolitical thought in the United States in the 10s, 20s, 30s. Um, one of the earliest theorizations of black internationalism, of course, was Jean Nadal's Internationalism Noir, published in 1928, which we accept in the anthology. Um, famously, you know, increasingly famously, the use of the English term international thought itself is traced to Florence Melian Stuhl's uh, The Growth of International Thought, published in 1929. And, you know, despite this heritage, the first close reading of this work appears with Glenda Sluger's essay um, in the edited volume. The, you know, the list, the list could go on. Yes, I, I mean, um, you in in your list of of movements, um, you you have left out um, feminism and, and and the women's movement and and yeah. also the movement for for suffrage, which which is also the backdrop to some of this some of this work. We didn't address it specifically in in the volume; it it features a bit more heavily in the anthology. But um, but obviously, the question of political selfhood, of legal selfhood for women is inextricably linked with some of these developments in in the era, especially um, of, of World War II, uh, World War One, um, and in the sort of uh, turn of the 20th century more generally. Um, and there's a wave of suffrage act activism in this period. Um, and it, it, it is um, often sort of, it intersects with, with movements for um, anti-colonial nationalism, for example, or um, liberal internationalism and, and world order world order thinking. Um, some of these uh, movements that you have mentioned, we have not covered in as much detail. So I, here I would sort of highlight conservatism and, and fascism. There, there is uh, certainly uh, more work to be, to be done, um, especially uh, sort of given resurgent interest in, in what is sometimes termed fascist internationalism. And, and here again, I'd like to point to uh, a very important edited collection on internationalism by uh, Glenda Sluger and um, Patricia Clavin. Um, but uh, feminism is important for some of the thinkers in the volume to, to return more centrally to, to the book. Um, this is apparent, for example, in a chapter by Lucian Ashworth, who who looks at uh, thinkers who take um, a feminist, even maternalist position, but come to very different conclusions. And maternalism um, is obviously also important in the thinking of Eslanda Robeson, um, possibly also in the thinking of um, Amy Ashwood-Garvey, but, uh, but uh, maybe I'll, I'll leave that for, for later on in the discussion. Thank you. And uh, we are definitely uh, going to talk about... Um, uh, like specific chapters. So in the uh, first um, section, um, uh, the first four essays of the volume revisits the intellectual over of four canonical thinkers in 20th century international thought. Anna Julia Cooper, Islanda Robson, Rosa Luxemburg, and Simone Weil. Uh, can you tell us briefly how these essays provide new frames for thinking about historical recovery as an epistemological project 
what are the historical and contemporary stakes of revisiting this archive of thought? How might these chapters offer a new frame for thinking about international politics within the context of race, racialization, empire, and diaspora, and review the relationship between one's positionality and knowledge production? Um, I think one way of thinking about um, recovery projects recovery projects as an, as an epistemological project um, and as a way of sort of also reorienting the field is by looking at how and why women and canonical thinkers um, were excluded in, in the first place and, so, um, and some of the limits of recovery. So Vivian May in her essay on Anna Julia Cooper addresses this question directly. It's not difficult to see that Cooper's, you know, why Cooper would be radically excluded from IR because she violated the gendered civilizational and Eurocentric assumptions of the field. Um, but, you know, but Vivian may also explicitly reflect on the politics and practices of recovery in the sort of terms that you, you describe. Um, in terms of this, this sort of stakes in revisiting this archive of thought in terms of transforming our work and knowledge practices, you know, we, after, you know, uh, Vivian may points out that despite 40 years using her, just, I've got her, the chapter open in front of me, she says, despite over 40 years of careful recovery efforts and thoughtful interdisciplinary scholarship on Cooper, her work continues to remain overlooked in fields where her contributions could be taken up. Um, uh, if the field's normative genealogies, methodologies and histories have been marked by dominant race, gender and class assumptions about what counts as international thought, then these problems cannot really be remedied by following, folding excluded thinkers, concepts and issues into extant, extant frames and histories. Rather, such change requires reflexivity confronting how power imbues interpretive norms and ensures archival absences and transforming our work and, and knowledge practices, end, end quote. Um, Kim, um, Kim Hutchings and I tried to do this um, and show um, uh, how and why figures were excluded in the first place in a new uh, article in American Political Science Review where we pick up um, on Cooper, um, but also canonical thinkers, Ellen Churchill, Semple, and Bertha von Suttner. And, you know, Semple was marginalized in histories of international thought through the denial of independent meaning to her ideas, um, placing them as immediately superseded by her own students. Suttner, you know, she's construed as not serious, unsystematic, comical, sentimental, because she wrote an explicitly feminized, um, from an explicitly feminized standpoint and in the first person in novels. And, you know, Cooper, again, could never have been included among IR's intellectual greats. Um, even much more than Semple and Suttner, who, who met every other criteria of being included in, in the canon, Cooper offers a, such a profound challenge to dominant accounts of international relations. So to, to in terms of the epistemological project of recovery, her inclusion and the inclusion of, of, of other black internationalist thinkers necessarily reorients the field. That's a little bit more hopeful, I think, than the conclusion than, than Vivian May's after you know working on Cooper for a long time. I think she's probably more qualified um, um, to, 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 make, to take this position, but I'm still a bit more hopeful. I mean, I, um, I don't really have much, much to add to this, I, uh, but I, I, I do believe that this section on, on the canon or the, this part of the book on, on the canon is, is hugely important. Um, if, if it's okay, I can say... A bit more about the next um, part of the book um, about the outsiders. Um, 
I mean, uh, there you you uh, provided some, some questions um, and and listed some of these uh, figures: uh, Elizabeth Wiskman, Elizabeth Lippincott McQueen, Amy Ashford Garvey, Mitty Maud, Lena Gordon, um, and uh, asked us to reflect on genres, boundaries, and, and audiences in in regard to these these thinkers. Um, I mean, to these and in, in the book, we also add the women of the Women's International League and, and Freedom. Now, um, maybe with some hindsight, it, I, I'm, I think they, they are a bit apart because um, WILP, as the organization was known, was, was actually fairly established and had a sort of quasi-official status um, in Geneva with the League of Nations at, at some point in the interwar years. But um, the, the sort of outsiders that, that we included in the book or the essays on those um, uh, are, are really quite different thinkers in, in terms of background, the opportunities they had, the kinds of discrimination they faced, um, and also the way uh, in which they were treated by the powers um, that be. So the two African-American women in the section, um, Amy Ashford Garvey and Timothy Maud, Lena Gordon, they, they faced considerable racism. Um, this contrasts uh, to somebody like Elizabeth Wiskman, who was uh, most, who was a commercially quite successful author. She she wrote uh, hugely successful books um, on contemporary affairs, on international politics, um, and she she was very well respected, even though she really struggled um, financially in terms of finding um, um, a university post that that was um, well well paid. Um, then obviously we had we had the politics here. So Mitty Maud, Lena Gordon was involved in clandestine networks that, that were regarded by the American state as subversive, and and she actually ended up facing prosecution. So this this outsiders part of the book is is um, a bit difficult in terms of finding a, a common denominator. But one of the things that I think this section shows us are the often very precarious material conditions um, in which these women thinkers worked. Um, so whether that applies to Elizabeth Wiskman, who had problems securing a stable income, despite being very prolific, or to Gordon, who wrote also quite prolifically, but whose writings had to be read out. They had to be transmitted orally um, because there was just not enough money to reproduce them. Or indeed to Elizabeth Lippincott-McQueen, who, who had this peripatetic, uh, peri- peripatetic existence as, as a... As, um, as, a, as a very charismatic figure who depended on wealthy patrons, um, but who was nonetheless um, on the margins of some of the more established international relations thinking, or at least the international relations education circuit. I mean, the, the issue of publicness and um, speaking to different publics and indeed counter-publics is also an undercurrent in this section of the book. So... I think um, that might be something uh, useful uh, to reflect on in terms of audiences and, and of boundaries. What sort of publics, what audiences do these thinkers address, um, and um, what is their relation to the the powers um, that be? I mean, the other aspect that I would like to highlight in the section is um, that some of these thinkers thought against the grain. Um, they maybe embraced positions that we might might now find worthy of critique or that we might not agree with, um, whether that's Amy Ashworth Garvey's respectability politics that were nonetheless quite subversive of um, black patriarchy, as Robbie Shilliam um, outlines in his chapter, or 
um, Gordon's championing of the Japanese empire or McQueen's white racial Anglo-American utopia. Some of these positions are um, are difficult, are, are complex. Um, and uh, if I have had to think of one thinker that, that was the most respectable, that was probably Elizabeth Wiskman. But even she faced problems in the 1930s. She was working as a reporter in Berlin and she was arrested by the Gestapo and had to leave the country. So um, their outsider status is something that does run through the section, even though we have thinkers with very different intellectual and political commitments and also opportunities. Thank you so much for that. And I think that that leads us very nicely to the final section of the volume, which turns to women theories located within the academy. Um, and how might this allow us to rethink the emergence and differentiation of disciplinary knowledge, methodology and protocol? And what do these thinkers offer us by way of insights into the historicity of knowledge production itself? This is another massive and important um, question. Um, not only because I, I, I'm still slightly overwhelmed by that question because it's the subject of my work, my main work in progress right now. Um, I'm my next book is a, um, my single authored book um, will uh, is a, will attempt a revisionist history of uh, practices, genres, audiences of international relations expertise in early to long mid 20th century Britain. Um, so, it, you know, again, it, taking up figures largely unknown um, to shed light on the field's racial and gendered history. This is so in the British context, it's largely, um, but not entirely, one of white women's IR um, practiced with varying degrees of attention to and complicity in racial hierarchies. Um, unsurprisingly, um, again, uns like like the other figures that we've encountered, these figures adopt a range of responses to gendered power and their own gendered identities. Kinship, class, and intimate relations obviously mattered. Um, you know, these were privileged daughters of diplomats wives and mistresses of canonical men, unmarried women, queer. Um, so, you know, these, again, these are sort of themes, the themes that are, that come out of the project as a whole of professional context, professional contexts of fields and disciplines, you know, what were the fields and disciplines where international relations was practiced and how did that change? Uh, how were, how a race and nation configured in, in, in the late empire and, uh, and, and, and the emergence of a sort of post Imperial, so-called post-imperial Britain and a new international relations um, and, and professional contexts as well. Some of these themes are picked up in uh, or are elaborated on in the, in the section, in the, in the edited volume on thinking in or around the academy, but my main session at the moment is thinking about this in the British, in the British context. Yes, I mean, if, if I could um, maybe add a little bit on the American context, and, and we, we also have one thinker um, in the book, uh, Christina Marek, yeah, who, was, right. um, who was based in Geneva. Uh, she was of Polish origin, um, but she, she ended up as a professor in, in Geneva, but at an institution the, uh, that, that was, had been founded with American philanthropic money. But um, the one um, black thinker we have in our section on the academy is, is Morris Tate, um, who became a professor at Howard University. And, and again, this is uh, a, um, a huge work in progress by Barbara Savage right now, who's writing her biography. Um, but Morris Tate was uh, highly unusual, um, securing a professorship as a black woman in, in the U.S. Academy is um, was was highly unusual and and. Um, it, it is no accident that, that she is the only um, the only woman um, 
of, of color in, in this particular section. Um, and uh, that's, uh, that, is, that was the nature of um, academic international thought um, in Britain, in the United States in this period. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Patricia and Katerina. Um, we have taken up a lot of your time, and it's definitely been a real pleasure to discuss your work with you. And we certainly can't wait for the new volume, Women's International Thought Towards a New Canon, which um, will be published soon, and we can actually pre-order uh, that volume now. Um, this is um, uh, your host, Stephen Liu, and uh, thanks to our listeners for tuning in to uh, today's episode. Uh, in which we explored Women's International Thought, A New History, published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press. Uh, I'm your host, Zifeng Liu. And I'm your co-host, Calvin Eng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in Intellectual History. Thank you all so much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you.